And I guess we have to take a picture today as well. You look very nice for a picture. That's why I took a shower and I put stuff in my beard to keep the flyaways down. And oh, everything. Okay, look at you getting ready. And see, I, I didn't do this morning. Anyway. <laughs> you look good anyway. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, yeah. uh, we're recording. I'm Garrett McQueen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. Scott, I'm not feeling too hot today. You do seem a little uh, little green around the gills. What is that? Oh, green around the gills. I, I've never, I don't know if I'm familiar with that one. Uh, I'm probably mixing metaphors. But you, <laughs> you look like you're hurting a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I want to blame it on the one martini I had with dinner yesterday, but I think those scallops just weren't quite right. But anyway, I hope you I hope you turn it around. Yeah, we we will. Um, and and it's especially difficult sometimes to deal with feeling a little under the weather because uh, that can affect your mental health, right? Not that my mental health is just in shambles, but you know these uh these past uh, couple months have been really busy, as, as yeah. you know. You know, I've been putting in a lot of work in a lot of places and. But here we are, pressing forward. I, I see you do pulling all the extra hours. You're working uh, five, six days a week yeah. and long hours and all that. So. Hashtag no days off. Well, um, hopefully soon enough, uh, you know, once the podcast gets rolling and uh, we have a system in place. Or, or if my lottery numbers hit, either way. Well, however it works out. I'm still going to do the podcast if I hit the lottery, though. Well, just remember me. No, of course. We're, we're, we're going to do the podcast together, um, or maybe we'll do a second one, uh, Triloquy After Dark, where we're, oh. where we're allowed to curse and do all that. Get spicy. And, and get, get into some of those really meaty conversations. Uh, but, but anyway, mental, mental health is a, is a meaty conversation in itself. We're fresh out of uh, Mental Health Month. Mental Health Awareness Month. Mental Health Awareness Month, yeah. Why do you think, why do we need a month to be aware of it? Shouldn't we just be aware of it all the time? Well, we should, but for far too long, um, it's sort of a subject that we've ignored. Um, from you know where I come from, I had never heard of anybody going to therapy or anything. And as soon as you talk to somebody about going to see a mental health professional, the uh, the assumption is that you know you're a little um, something wrong with something you. wrong with you. And yeah. The, the only reason I hesitate is because. You know, with 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 the attention we're paying to mental health comes a, a different sort of language that we are um, expected to use. I'm going to say this word for the sake of this crazy is one of those words yeah. that has quickly turned into a pejorative and a, and a yeah. word that, you know, we, we, we just shouldn't shouldn't say. And uh, and I'm you know, I'm always down for for showing equity and uh, and, and making sure um, I am a part of creating a world where more people belong and feel more comfortable and you know a world in which we're we're using correct language for for things so you know uh my dad suffers from depression really and, and i think that some of that has trickled down to me you know that uh some of it is just inherited but he was the oldest of 13 you know wow. and, and wow. they were living at you know near poverty levels you yeah know? so um he got into the air force and got out of that situation and made a nice little life but particularly around the holidays, he'll start thinking about his family and he'll get down. Mm -hmm. And so the time that he was coming up, you know, in the 40s, um, you didn't talk about that kind of stuff. Right. You didn't, you know, uh, there, there just simply wasn't that sort of help. And then he moved into the, the uh, era of time where uh, it was talked about but it was like an admission of weakness if all of a sudden right. you went into therapy right. or that you needed to take a pill for a little bit of help. You know? yeah. So I'm glad to see that things have turned around. Well, 
well, or at least started. Well, when you say that, um, you know, your dad suffers from depression and some of that has trickled down to you, suffering from depression is more than just feeling a little depressed, right? I mean, what what is it? Help, help me understand what that means to suffer from depression. For me? Sure. Um, well, it is uh, usually it's a feeling of, you know, like I'm, I'm helpless, um, alone. The way that it t- tends to affect me is I get really lethargic. And even the things that I love to do when I'm feeling good, I don't feel like, you know, I don't want to go play guitar. I don't want to write, go hang out with friends. As a matter of fact, I think Radar, my dog, saved my life to a degree because I got to get him on a walk every day. If I don't, he lets me know we're supposed to be walking. Shout out to Radar. He's such a good dog. So, um, yeah, so thankfully I have him to get, uh, that I still get out and move around a little bit because when the bouts hit, I I really just want to pull the blanket up over my head and just and just yeah. sleep it off. And something we talk about a lot, I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast yet, but how, um, you know, working overnight didn't help that no. for you. You know, that that was, you know, that, that feeling of isolation can, can really be yeah. something as, you know, as an overnight person, an and then, overnight worker. And then the, the, the endless darkness on the, uh, yeah. on top of it. Yeah, so. yeah, during those winter months, um, I was waking up, in the dark, you know, getting home in the dark, going yeah. to sleep. You know, it, it was just my life was in the dark. I, I, I was one of those vampires. Um, but I'm I'm lucky to have Dell around. You know, I'm not you know by myself. But I I can definitely imagine you know never really seeing anyone. How how that can can uh, can you know affect the mental health for sure. Um, how was he coping with uh, you being on an off- opposite schedule? Well, we do pretty good. Um, and that our off days are the same. So Oh, um, that helps a lot. Yeah. So Sundays and Mondays when I decide not to come to work, um <laughs> we we, <laughs> we 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 have uh all day together. Um it used when we first moved here, I was getting off work right before he was leaving, so I would cook breakfast and all that and um but but lately he's been um at work before I even get home, so uh, by the time I get up uh, in the evenings, uh, he's around. So we have a little time. It's 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 not more than a a high and by really. But um, but but just knowing that those dedicated days of hanging out, um, not working, not having anything else to worry about, really maintain my mental health. And of course, yeah. you know, getting to hang out with you on the on the weekends, I think we have a pretty good time. Oh, we always have a good time. Hang out, you know, play some music, listen to some uh, different sorts of music. I think that's actually the um, my favorite thing um, that uh, you and I do on the weekends, just kind of explore non-classical, well, you know, non-quote-unquote classical music. Oh, that's a whole different conversation. Playing DJ on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you expose me um, to uh, one of my, still one of my favorite uh, performances by uh, that singer LP. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that whole album is great. Um, I know you've been uh, listening to a little bit of Kendrick, thanks to um, me and Dell. Yeah. Um, what is it? Love Me or Just Love? Yeah. That song, uh, that's the one that tripped it. Because you, then... you like that, uh, you like the, uh, the singing in that high tessitura. You, you like that descant line. It's, the, it's, the little, it's just a little punctuation. Love me. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. a little punctuation that I like. What else? But I mean, but, but you spending so much time as an actual like party DJ and a dance DJ, you, 
you know, you you have access to all of that music of old. Yeah, that... I got a wide background. <laughs> yeah, um, this is back when Belle Bib DeVoe was burning up the dance floor. Of course, floors. I know Belle Bib DeVoe. You know, they say that song Poison is about an STD. Huh. <laughs> Which makes sense. Boy, and I was playing that at high school dances. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were all listening to music that we had, you know, that we didn't really know what they were talking about. But, you know, it's, it's all good. So the big ones that I was playing was LL Cool J. That was right around the Mama Said Knock You Out. Yep, of course. Era. Uh, Johnny Gill. Um, You'll have to remind me about Johnny Gill. Well, he was um, uh, n- part of New Edition. And then when they oh, split of course. up. Right. Of course. So, yeah. And then, you know, and and my prerogative was, I mean, yeah. you know, that was coming out of ev- my prerogative. every car window going by yep. it had that on. That was like the song of that summer. Mm-hmm. I remember my dad, you know, my dad was a, a DJ uh, for a long time, too. And my my childhood memories, um, you know, I think about him uh, and uh, my uncles and aunts all coming over to have their little, you know, party time listening to um uh, who was Whitney Houston's husband? <laughs> Bobby, Brown. Bobby Brown. Like listening to old Bobby Brown and uh, Teddy Pendergrass and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then after the party, I would go to the public radio station where I cut my teeth. Shout out to KVNO in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and then I would work midnight to seven there. Oh, well. Wow. Uh, no, at first it was two to seven. 2 a.m. to 7 a.m., jazz for the first three hours, and then an hour of new age, and then moving into classical. And back then, you were dealing with vinyl and stuff, whatever that is. Yep, absolutely (laughs) was, yeah. And um, But I will credit that job with giving me a wider appreciation of music, and I think that this really feeds into your guest for this week. Yeah, so, um, and it's interesting to talk about you know, isolation when it comes to uh, Brandon, because, you know, as a musician sitting in that practice room can be very isolating as well. You know, I, I won my first job after spending eight hours every day for two months on my bassoon. You know, there's no mm-hmm. one else around. That's just kind of your your thing. And it can be isolating. But Brandon Kofer has carved out a career for himself as a, um, a music teacher and a collaborative pianist. And and that is very specific phrasing that um, we're taught in music school, not an accompanist, but a right. co- but a, a collaborative artist, because you know the the relationship between, let's say the um, let's say we're talking about a violin sonata, the the relationship between the solo violin and the piano is much more than oh this is a of the violin show with the pianist in the background. It's it's very much a a collaborative thing. We talked a lot about. Um, his relationship with non-classical genres like uh, like uh, jazz and and gospel and yeah. he used the word freedom a lot when he when he talked about that and classical music can be very isolating but it can also be it can feel unfree a lot because you're you know trying to perfect what's right here on this page you know and to play only this nothing more nothing less and um, and how other genres kind of you know allow a little bit more freedom in that Mm -hmm. regard. Um, You know, classical professionals kind of perpetuate this idea, not all, but many perpetuate the idea that classical music is just the the top echelon of of what is music, Mm -hmm. you know, and anything anything else is below it. And I just do not believe in that. I I 
it, it sounds sacrilegious for me to sit here and say that I don't think classical music is the greatest genre of music, but I don't think it is because I think all genres of music really have something to offer, especially when it comes to, again, uh, attaching music to a cultural experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time listening to hip hop. And when I, you know, when I hear it, I, I just, I hear a, a person's story and I, and I hear, you know, something that relates to me a little more than Mozart, you know, or, yeah. or Rachmaninoff. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that classical music is below, right. you know, other genres. But I think we just have to do a better job of, of of understanding why we need to appreciate all these different genres and all these different perspectives. There was something interesting that you two started talking about, which was wrong notes in music. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked about, you know, listening to Bernstein play piano and there was oh, yeah. loads, <laughs> of, you know, you could find loads of slop and everything. But it, but people but it didn't matter. It. No. Yeah. Um, and I heard somebody talking here on the floor about how there was a wrong note in Do It Again from the band Steely Dan, but they just kept going with it anyway. And when I listen to that, I f- it feels right. So what, what, what would you say to people that, that demand perfection, like the Glenn Goulds <laughs> out yeah. there, that everything needs to be spot on and perfect? Well, there, there are a few ways that, that I approach that, so... When I was um, playing bassoon um, full time, I just I could not stress over a missed note because I have way too many notes to play this week mm. to be stressed over this one. Now, of course, if I'm playing this lyrical solo, this orchestral solo, and you know I've missed a note, you know I've I've missed an opportunity, you know to to really showcase what this composer was doing. But mm. at the same time, at the end of the day, I think it's all about spirit and 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 what what you can get a listener to really um feel from from the experience and not just hear and oftentimes you know right and wrong notes is just a very arbitrary um part of that i I like to think of what a composer wrote on a piece of music as suggestions because you know notes aside i don't always play the exact dynamics that were there sometimes i think mm-hmm. something should be a little softer or a little louder than than what's there you know you can talk for days about um intonation um but between you know multiple musicians so you know when we when we get down to the nuts and bolts of of perfection i, I think we're missing the point perfection is possible you know that that's that's one of the biggest things i learned um in in grad school at at usc uh, from my teacher, shout out to Judy Farmer, that you can play this exactly as the composer had in mind. You just have to put that work in. So it's not about not being able to achieve perfection as much as it's about transcending the idea of perfection, not letting, oh, I'm playing this perfectly, being the end of your journey with this music, but but putting forward the spirit of it through your practice and through, you know, so, and if you're able to do that um, while playing all the notes and rhythms that the, that the composer has suggested, that's great. That's what most of us do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, on stages, but every now and again, you know, there's, you know, there, there's a, there's a little, there's a little frog in there or, or, you know, a little, a little whatever, you know, um, and, and that's, that's just how it is. That's just part of it. And we, and we kind of, me and Brandon chat about that a little bit. We uh, talked. Where, where, where were you guys when this interview happened? So uh, this was also in Detroit, um, uh, at the at the Sphinx Conference. Okay. Um, 
um, a conference that I actually introduced him to. I was, uh, you know, posting stuff years ago on my social media, and he said he wanted to be a part of it. So, so now he's a he's a part of the Sphinx Familia, and uh, and has made a lot of great contacts there, including the members of his um, of his uh, trio. They I think they call themselves the Black Tie Trio. Brandon will talk a little bit more about that. Um, he talks about. Um, singers a little bit, which I, I'm curious to see what people think about that. I, I asked him uh, toward the end of our conversation, is there a, is there a sort of instrument or, or a type of musician that he really loves working with and one that he, you know, is toward the bottom of the list? And he unfortunately talks about how collaborating with vocalists can be a, a challenge. So, um, so, so that's a thing. But now, is it re- can, can you really narrow it down to the instrument, or is it just people and they happen to be a vocalist, or they happen to be a violinist or a flutist or whatever? Well, in my non-piano collaborations, there are certainly instruments that I think it's really fun to play with. I I, I love playing with um, string quartets or every now and you know a couple times I've gotten to perform with like percussion ensembles that's really fun that would be cool you know of course always having that really great pianist is um, you know that that's that's sort of the staple but I don't personally love um, collaborating with with saxophone players not because I don't like the sax (laughs) but I think the sound of the bassoon and the sax together are a little too close to make sense for me some people make it work i don't know Every, everyone has their their favorites and their not so favorites and me and brandon uh, explore that as well as uh, a few other things all right let's listen to the conversation with brandon kofer you know that i won't soon forget um the collaboration we got to do in knoxville Absolutely. i thought that was so much fun i loved that is what i dream to do on a consistent basis now, what do you mean, dream to do on a consistent basis? Like, just play chamber music? Chamber or music. Well, honestly, chamber music is the forefront of what I want to do. But ultimately, my goal as a musician is just to collaborate. And yeah. with my success, hopefully, with my success, hopefully, I can bring others with me. You know, I'm not super famous or anything, but my goal as a my goal as my own individual musician is to bring everybody together. How did how did all of this start? What when did you start playing piano and uh and when when did you know that okay I, I'm I can do this this so, is what I'm gonna do? I was a late bloomer. Um, I went to an after school program in Knoxville called Crutcher Memorial Youth Enrichment Center. Shout out to them. Oh yeah, and so everyone there, black kids, and we took typing, sewing, you know. Did you know Spanish. you know how to sew? I didn't take sewing. Okay, but my mom basically, and even then, I didn't listen to music a lot. I just kind of was. Going through life as a typical kid, I got involved in lessons, and then after that, it was a wrap. I mean, yeah. after school, I wouldn't even do homework. I would go because I only had lessons on Thursdays with Miss Hill. Shout out Miss Hill. Yeah, um, I only had her for that one year, so I don't really remember her. But I would just go through the books. Yeah, I mean, I can read. I know what the notes are, and literally after that year, fifth grade, sixth grade, I'm accompanying the sixth grade choir. Look at you. And I really, I just cannot even, as an adult, I can't even fathom how I did that. And I think it's just because <laughs> I love the music. I mean, you know? do, do, do you remember that first one, that, that first time? Yes, you were... absolutely. I remember the songs. Um, what were they? Gloria Deo, I Forget Who It's By, um, <laughs> an, a version of Agnew's Day. Yeah. And uh, some other crazy song that was really fast and hard. But, um, you know... For a long time, basically until my sophomore year in college, I basically just relied on my talent. 
You know, I was naturally good. And so it wasn't really until my junior recital in college that I was like, wow, this is amazing. I want to do this forever. Yeah. And you can ask any of my college professors. You know, I was the kid. I was late to class. <laughs> I did whatever I wanted to do. But you could always guarantee I was going to be at that rehearsal. I was going to have all the notes learned. And I was going to sell out. Uh, I want to I want to hop back to what you said, you know, relying on talent. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that... You know, I myself, as a bassoonist, had mm-hmm. to break myself out of, you know, in undergrad, just Absolutely. actually understanding that, you know, I got to sit down and practice mm-hmm. this thing. You know, what, 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 what's your relationship with that idea of not relying on talent? I think for me, it was just, you know, when I, re- when I really started getting into listening to, you know, when you get pieces in college, you want to hear other people play those pieces. And, yeah. and then it hit me like, I'm not the only talented black kid that plays piano. I'm not the only one. Yeah, and let alone the only pianist. You know, there's three-year-olds that play better than me. But honestly, what really got me concentrated on quality practice was teaching. Hmm. It wasn't until then where I'm telling these kids what to do that I was like, wow, I really do know what I'm doing, but I'm not implementing these things because, in a way, I'm still relying on my talent. So your students were like, how are you going to tell me to play my scales when you ain't playing your scales? Oh, yeah. Well, I t- I'm, and the thing <laughs> that I love about teaching is that I'm super honest with my kids. You know, I have, one, I have a few students who I told them, you know, I didn't do my scales in arpeggios as a student, and now I wish I had. Yeah. So now that I'm teaching these things to my kids, it's, it's just impacted my playing on a whole other level, yeah. you know? It really has, and it's just kind of like, you never really are sure if you know what you're talking about until you try it, right? you know? I knew these things, but was I doing it in my own practice? No, not at all. And so, um, kind of taking a step back, you know, as a student in undergrad, I was the only piano major that was accompanying probably 10 or more students. And, and, and shout out your undergrad real quick. Oh, Carson Newman University. Hey, Carson Newman. Yeah, <laughs> Jefferson City, Tennessee. But yeah, you know, other the other pianists were so focused on their rep. But for me, it's all music is a universal language. It breaks the barriers. And um, I think it's Martha Argerich who was like, I hate performing solo on the stage. Because there's something magical that happens when you and another performer are up there and sometimes you're not even looking at each other. Right. It, it can be a simple breath. It can be a pause. But the communication is just there. Yeah. It just kind of ascends everything. And I just want that. And not, not just for me, but for everybody. You know, um, a new piano trio that I started uh, called Black Tie. Our goal. Come on, Black Tie. Mm-hmm, absolutely. With <laughs> that cello guy, Cremaine Booker, and violinist Jason Pooler. You know, our main focus, we're still a relatively new uh, trio. We had our first premiere concert last year, and we're having two more, hopefully three this nice. year. Both of those in Knoxville. Mm, well, one in Knoxville, hopefully, and one in Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where Jason is from. <laughs> okay. But just to enwrap all audiences, you know, not just the professional musicians, not just the amateur ones, but the people who appreciate the music. Yeah, but but you know, I, I have to challenge you a little bit. When you when you say that music is the universal language, mm-hmm. you know, instrumental music is not. Uh, everyone's language. True. There, there are a lot of people, especially us, especially black folk, that mm-hmm. that don't really understand uh, the the relevance and 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 the power of mm-hmm. of classical music. How, how do you deal with that? I think for me personally, it all starts with um, exposing people to the songs that they like. 
like this Black Street song. People love that song. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, look what I can do with this song. I can take that riff and morph it into anything. Right. And Variations on Don't Leave yeah, Me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You can do, and there's this kid on Instagram who takes classical pieces and puts them basically to a trap beat. You know, all those kind of things can make music accessible. Yeah. You don't have to love it, but you can have an understanding for it. That in, in that case grows your love and appreciation of music. Yeah. You know, I hate playing Baroque pieces. But I love listening to them because it's inspiring. No, no shade to Vivaldi. Yeah, all, I, love, I love Four Seasons. <laughs> <laughs> but I just feel like people need to, it's just kind of like with new food. You know, when you're a kid, you don't like broccoli. Or I'll speak for myself. Never liked almonds. One day I you just. You don't like almonds. I do now. Never ate them as a kid. Couldn't stand them. And then just one day I was like, dang. So you feel like folks just need to give it a try. You have to. You have to change. I think it's so much more than that, though. There, there has to be a a, a, a a sort of connection that has to be made. You know, there has to be a relevance that, that I clicks. Think, I think the relevance is just based on the individual. You have to find what that interest that they have and how that connects them to the music. It's kind of like with each of my piano students. You know, they all have different interests. And I always try to make sure I bring it back to what makes sense to them. Right. And then in that case, I get the results I want. You know, uh, we've been talking this week at Sphinx about nurturing the seed and, you know, inspiring these kids who have other interests, yes, and will probably go on to do other things besides music, but have music be a part of their lives forever. Yeah. Because you think about it, movies, you know, just driving in the car, there's always some kind of music around you. You just have to learn kind of how to take it in and find what you like, you know? Right, exactly. So I think to answer your question, it's just finding the connection for the individual and your love and bridging it together. Yeah, and and, and that definitely rings true for me because, you know, I'm definitely not like a trained pianist, but, you know, I found my own relevance in trying to play the piano, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a way that works for me, you know. And I love your videos on Instagram. Oh, I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm king of the block chords. Hey. Root position. That's all, man. <laughs> it gets better and easier with each song you do. And, and then it opens up um, so many other things. You know, I've I've began to really love to sing because mm-hmm. I can do that at the piano. Exactly. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's let's get into what it means um, to just be a pianist in this world. You know, one of the first things in, uh, as an undergraduate that I sort of started to think about that was unique to pianists is the fact that you don't have your instrument with you. So when I go perform, you know, I have my, this Mm -hmm. is, I know how it works, blah, blah, blah. But you just have to kind of, just open up the, open up the lid and Mm -hmm. and see what happened. Yeah. So that's literally probably the most difficult thing about playing on a piano, you know, at the studios where I teach at, like Grand Music Studios based out of Knoxville, we have an older grand piano that was donated and a smaller piano that I teach at a, a smaller room. The one that was donated, the action is awful. It's heavy. And what does that mean for, for action to be so awful? So action just, there really is no dynamic contrast. Even if you're me, you know, professional musician, it's hard to get the sound that you work so hard to get on your own instrument. So push the key hard, push the key soft. Yeah, it's just so for instance, really that there. piano, it's very r- rough. You know, it's hard to play. Like you couldn't play Debussy on that piano. Mm. You couldn't really play Chopin. Now, could you play some Prokofiev? Oh, absolutely. Come on, Prokofiev. Yeah, or some Shostakovich <laughs> where it's more percussive. Yeah. yeah. So I tell my students, 
you just have to go with it. You know, there are times where you don't get to test the instrument and you just have to go out there. And so um, it's easy to get around. You just kind of have to get out of your own mental space. But typically there's preparation time. But that's also a thing I'm jealous about, you know, violinists, you know, everyone can carry their instrument everywhere, yeah. you know, practice kind of anywhere. And as pianists, you know, we kind of have to really make good use of our time. Yeah. I mean, but you can you can carry around a keyboard if you really wanted you to, right? You can, but that's one of those things where you got you just have to have that resistance. It's kind of like when you're a beginning student, you know, I always tell my parents, you know, the action on the keyboard doesn't matter now, but it will. Yeah. Cuz it's a it's a muscular thing, you know. Um I just feel like I don't know, I don't know. You just the, every every instrument is different. And that's just the beauty of humanity, making these instruments. Yeah. You know, and the more pianos you get to play on, or just the more gigs you do, the more you kind of see, you just have to go with it and just kind of make it work. But I, I, well, I bet you sometimes you've, you've sat down at a piano and been like, dang, I wish this was my piano. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> speaking of bad piano, so choir tour, college, we're at this um, small church, beautiful sanctuary, but man, this piano... So we were Trash. doing. Oh yeah, absolute garbage. We were doing the Cantique by. Cannot remember the. You ain't got no composers in your back pocket today. Not today, <laughs> man. I'm no, just. All right. I'm all about the chamber music and some other music that I'm working on recently. But um, beautiful French piece, the piano, twangy. Dang. Very twangy, super small, but you can't let that take away from the integrity of the performance. You know, right. I think when people see you unfazed then they're, they Un, will be unbothered. Amazed. Yeah. Yeah. It's all be. about just going with the flow and making the best out of a not ideal situation. Yeah. It is, do you feel like, you know, in the bassoon world, there are people that we sort of like look up to and this is, you know, uh, the, the fame person of yeah. this era and this day. But I feel like in piano, in the piano world, it's even stronger because oh. I know the name Martha Argerich mm -hmm. and I know, um, Who's uh, the the woman? Oh, she's uh, Japanese by heritage. Mitsuko Chida. Oh, you know, like Mozart I, specialist right there. Yeah, yeah. I, like I, I I know all these names. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like there would be pressure to to really match the the greatness of these oh, people who are just so famous. Absolutely, you know? and it can be intimidating, but at the same time, and I had to get through this myself. You can never measure yourself to any other musician. Hey. Every musician has their own struggles that they, it's just kind of like social media. You always see the highlights. I wish people would be more vulnerable and use Instagram to really relate to people. Let's see you mess up. Let's see you have to start something over because that is more relatable. That is what inspires people to say, hey, it doesn't matter if I mess up. It doesn't matter if I'm not as good as this person. I'm human. And with diligent practice and passion, it'll be there. That makes me think of the the uh, conversation that I think I read in uh, the New York Times or something a few years ago about how recordings are taking away from the live concert experience mm -hmm. because we're so used to hearing perfection. <coughs> excuse me, we're so used to hearing perfection that uh, as soon as we go to a live concert or something and we hear a missed note or whatever, yeah. oh, we just acting like the whole concert is ruined. ruined. Yeah, so. I, I was late to this seminar today, but I really wanted to ask this question, uh, relevance being equal to excellence. Let's say you go to a concert, right? Um, a piano concerto, okay? 
You see this person perform, excellent concert. No notes missed. But how many concerts do you see like that all the time? I mean, from my experience, pretty much every concert. Yeah. I'm not looking for the faults. But how, I am sometimes. Sometimes. You know, <laughs> it just depends on who's performing. You know, oh, new group, let's see what they're about. But let's say you go to a concert where some notes are missed. Typically, the first reaction is, uh-oh, uh-oh. But I think we have to get out of that space and just kind of let the moment happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a story I've been told. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh-oh, gossip time. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> Leonard Bernstein, okay? I don't know. And shout out to Leonard Bernstein. You know, he... Um, Everyone was talking about his centenary uh, last year, so mm-hmm. I feel like we all learned a little bit more about oh, Bernstein. Yeah, so there's this story, you know, I'm, I'm passing it down, word of mouth. He could have been playing a piano solo recital or a piano concerto, and he's going ham, and then misses a note. Takes his hands off the keys and is like, whoa. Just totally stops. I, I'm sure there's like a brief moment of, oh my gosh, Leonard Bernstein missed a note? What's going to happen? And then basically, me paraphrasing, he just goes on, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that story is true, but I can go on YouTube right now. And, and, and no, look, no shade to Bernstein, because, like, I love him. He was so uh-huh. influential. There's a video of him on YouTube that I can pull up right now. Mm-hmm. He's playing the, uh, the Ravel Piano Concerto, the, uh, mm-hmm. the last movement. And he shoots smearing notes everywhere. Yeah. So, But that doesn't... You know, that doesn't take away from the performance for me. Right. <laughs> Especially def- considering that he would also conduct these uh, concertos exactly. from the keyboard, you know. It's just sometimes these people like Martha Argerich, <laughs> Christian Zimmerman, you know, uh, Yuja Wong, all these people. Oh, yeah, Yuja Wong, yeah. She's a, she's a firecracker. Oh, she's yeah. She's great. But um, you just get so used to seeing perfection, it just gets intimidating. And I think that is the biggest cloud that looms over a musician's head. You know, you see these people winning these competitions, playing with all the orchestras, and you're just like, I just cannot do that. And you can, just in your own way. Which goes back to there needs to be some transparency in seeing, I think, uh, Valentina Lazista. She mm-hmm. got really big off of putting Rachmaninoff stuff on YouTube. Yeah, shout out to Rachmaninoff. Yeah. And shout out to Knoxville yeah, for having his, uh, mm-hmm. the his only last concert. Yeah. Last concert, too. Yeah. Knoxville, we're coming for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... You just, I lost my train of thought here, but. Oh, that was my bad. Rachmaninoff, the pianist making his recordings famous. Oh, yeah. So you just kind of, oh, Valentina, right. So people were like, because she does play things fast. And people were like, <laughs> it's, it's sped up. And she actually recorded herself practicing for hours. I mean, probably a good six hours. I've never seen the video personally, but I'm sure there are some mistakes, some misnotes. I just wish, especially the younger kids, could see this. Because yeah. I think sometimes the pressure is just like, I can, I have to be perfect. I have to be a machine. But I think music kind of loses its integrity. You know, if you want perfect music, you can just plug it into the, the MIDI yeah. file. And it can play it perfectly. Yeah, The notes will be there, but you just miss the nuance. Right, right. So I just feel like, personally... The greats are amazing, and we should always look to them for inspiration, but we shouldn't judge our own musicianship based off of that. And it, it seems like this this spirit of uh, like perfection, especially when it comes to the piano, really principally lives in classical music because mm-hmm. the piano is such a dynamic instrument. Of course, it's in jazz, as we've been talking about. It's in hip-hop and mm-hmm. everything else. And... Um, 
even like when you go to when you go to the black church, that pianist is not worried about missing a note. No, I mean, at least I feel like. Oh, that. not at all. It's, like, it's just <laughs> hey, I gotta be there for the vocalist, and I'm I'm trying to worship. And then mm-hmm. and then when when the spirit hits, the spirit hits. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I just wish there was more of that. Um, I think that's why, like, I really respect jazz musicians. They're just in the moment. You know, it just happens. Yeah. Do, do you have any experience with jazz? I do. I do a lot of jazz on the side. I don't claim to be a jazz pianist. A jazzman? Yeah, <laughs> but I love it. You know, you put the music in front of me, yeah, I can read the notes and do the accents and stuff, but that's just not the same. Yeah. I want, I'm a little bit envious, but I don't practice those kind of skills. What are some of the main differences between playing classical and playing jazz on piano? Um, I think the main difference is just, for me speaking, I think just the freedom of not having music. Hmm. You know, I can do a court chart, I can read a lead sheet, but jazz musicians just go way beyond that, you know? Just how they play, you know, left hand doing a totally different comping, you know, totally different rhythm from your right hand. It's, it's just a whole different style of playing. You know, classical is just technical. Yeah. It's all technical when you break it down. Jazz is about feeding off of each other. So I wanted to make sure that uh, I brought her up separately because I respect her so much mm-hmm. as a pianist and a musician. So Nina Simone, yes. you know, she she came up um, in on the classical side of things, mm-hmm. but of course, you know, evolved into being a jazz player and mm-hmm. And I believe that that classical training informed the jazz playing. And, yeah. And and their tunes by her. I aired one on uh, on my on my show down in Knoxville where like it, she is playing this jazz solo, but then just slowly goes into to me what sounds like this Bach invention or or something. And, and it and it worked so perfectly. And and really, she is the only one in my opinion that could really do it quite like that. Um, oh, so, so, so you never know. You know, your your classical background could right. could and fuel you somewhere. It typically does. You know, when I think about classical musicians moseying on to jazz, you know, I think uh, Oscar Peterson runs for yeah. days. Yeah. You know, that's the things that, as a classical musician, I think we may have just a slight, a slight advantage over. But, but now you're gonna have all the jazz pianos. I know they're like, hey, they're coming for you. <laughs> but um, jazz musicians just have freedom. Yeah, and I love that. You know, as a you know black kid growing up, I played in church, but I couldn't hang in the black church. You couldn't play the praise breaks and stuff. I'm, I couldn't, and I was still <laughs> young and kind of insecure about my own playing. And so, but now that I'm older, I'm confident. I want to be back there. I want really, be, yeah, because it's just that's just music flowing out of you. You know, yeah. there was no reading the music. It's just there. Yeah. You're in the moment, and it's just flooding. And I'm so envious of that. So I'm trying to get back to my roots here, you know, but... um, But when, when I see it, like a, a, a piano uh, concerto performed or something, mm-hmm. I mean, nine times out of ten, the piece is, you know, memorized. There, mm-hmm. there's, there's no music there. Do, right. do you not think that sense of freedom lives... There, I'm sure for people who are really good at memorizing, yes. You're, you're not a rememorizer? Oh, man. <laughs> In undergrad, sure. When that's all I had to do, yeah. But as a collaborative pianist, my time is spent that's, yeah. learning so much music. And thank the Lord, sight reading is like my top skill. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it can be overwhelming. Like, I'm working on a solo recital right now, but I'm giving myself at least two years before. Two years. Before wow. I even have the music 
I've got it learned, but to memorize it, it's just a whole different set of skills that I've kind of lost over time. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so into collaboration. But why do you think memorization is such a thing in the piano world? I honestly think Franz Liszt came on the scene and just rocked it out. And people Franz. were, he's the one that really started it. Messing it up for everybody. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but for people that can do it, it's amazing. But I kind of feel like just because someone's using music, that shouldn't take the integrity of the work they're putting into it. Yeah. You know, a page turner is really important. And, you know, something I had to learn as a page turner is that pianists read music further ahead Absolutely. than we do. I tell my sure. students all the time, music, just in general, horizontal, mm -hmm. not linear. Yeah. You have to look ahead. You know, you just kind of have to know what's going on. And um, if you have a good page turner, great. If you have a bad one, uh. <laughs> I mean, I read along and I make sure I'm ahead, but I wait for that nod. Look, I wait for that little the page, head nod. Page turning is stressful. <laughs> I, I remember page turning for a professor in undergrad for a recital. I had to turn pages for him on two different occasions. And on both those occasions, I just kind of didn't drop the ball, but kind of, oh, uh oh. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, but he recovered and I, you know, he was my advisor too. One of these days, playing concertos won't be all about the memorization. Yeah. You know, because it's a team effort from the people rolling the piano out to the people that put the chairs from the orchestra up after the concert's over. Everybody plays a part somehow. That creates this experience that the audiences, that the audiences enjoy. Yeah. So, sorry y'all, memorizing just ain't my thing, but I'm gonna work on it. <laughs> no, ain't I'm, nothing wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna work on it. But, uh, memorization only became a thing for me when I was in grad school and I entered this uh, concerto competition mm -hmm. and they required that the piece be memorized. Yeah. And like I had chosen this um, 21st century, you know, like it was it was sort of a thing. I was yeah. nervous. But once, you know, I feel like memorize or yeah, working on memorizing the piece forced me to practice it more. Yeah. And, and uh, my goal was to know the piece so well mm -hmm. that I was just bored playing it. Like yeah. I, I was just, which I never became bored in, in a negative way. But you could whip it out. But yeah, I, I knew it was in my back pocket and, and it's probably still there today. It's been years. Shout, think, shout out Eric Awazin. <laughs> Do you know that composer? No, I don't. Yeah, shout out Eric Awazin. I, um, I think that's another thing that I'm envious of jazz and gospel musicians. Mm -hmm. It's all in the brain. Yeah. They know the licks. They know it's just in there. It's in their archives. And I think that's why I've had a struggle keeping up. You know, when I learn a song, and this is that collaborative pianist life, you learn, you practice, you practice, you practice, you do that gig, that music is gone. Like, I'm in a really bad habit of, well, I was in a bad habit, public domain. You get that music, you put it in a black folder, you do that concert, that music's gone. Yeah. Recycled, not trashed. Yes, yes, we're going <laughs> to be green. Yes, all the time. So I guess for me... I think that's why I love jazz musicians, because they're not using music. And there is something really cool about seeing no music up there. Yeah. So I kind of get it at the same time, but it's something I'm working on. But there's, there's a lot of, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you, uh, like, envy jazz musicians so much. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always imagine classical pianists to, you know, stand their ground. And... Oh, I mean, we do. So I'm just, I love all kind of music. So typically, if I'm not listening to classical or jazz, man, I love, like, rock music. Rock? Yeah, I know. I'm all over the place. I'm sure there's some piano licks. In, well, I guess what's popped into my head immediately is um, Amy Lee from the band Evanescence yeah. is a beautiful piano player. Mm -hmm. So I guess 
for me though, music is just a journey. I don't want to be, I'll say this, as far as my career, classical is what I do. That's what pays the bills, but as far as just wanting to continually grow, I want to, you know, I'm kind of really in, interested in studio musician work. Like for movies? Yeah, and, okay. man, that's just different. It's just different. I'm all about, you know, I'm getting close to 30. I want to see different things just besides your typical concert hall or church sanctuary, Schumann or Beethoven, and then applause. Yeah. You know, I, I'm hungry. And so I think a lot of that is, you know, at one point I was like, grad school, grad school, grad school. And then I was like, experience, experience, experience. So now I'm in this experience, I'm like, well, I've got a little taste of all this stuff. And I don't want to be limited to one thing. Yeah. I want to be marketable. You know, I want to be knowledgeable. And so to do that, I have to, of course, I think the only thing I've not done yet is playing a bluegrass group. Well, you live in the right part of the country. Oh, I sure do. <laughs> but um, do, do you, I'm curious to know if you fault uh, your education. Like, do, do you do you feel like your um, your education should have included a little more jazz, a little more gospel, a little more whatever? I I don't fault the institution because it was my choice to go there. That's true. I just think at the time, I, as a 18 year old, fresh 18 year old going into college, I didn't really know. I wanted. I wasn't even sure majoring in music was what I wanted to yeah. do. I basically just did it because that's what I was good at. And um, I think now, if I had to give advice to a student, I would say you want to research and make sure you're not just getting a one note, you know, career path. You know, no pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and I think that's why I loved accompanying students because there was no collaborative piano class in undergrad. There was no class to teach you how to accompany or be an accompanist or a collaborator. That's just something that I was naturally drawn to. And so um, I would say to the young students out there, just make sure all your options are weighed out. And make sure that, yeah, you may want to be a classical violinist, but yeah, take some jazz lessons with somebody. Yeah. You know, because that's going to aid you and make you more versatile. And make you appreciate everybody else that's performing, you know? And you definitely have to be very versatile as a collaborative pianist. You, you know? do. I, I, all of my hats go off to the collaborative pianist because I know sometimes y'all have to deal with folks, they getting lost and oh, they didn't skip look, measures. <laughs> I tell people all the time, um, solo pianists are just different from collaborative pianists. Um, for so, me... Sounds like you use that word different very specifically. Yeah, well, and then this is my opinion. Solo pianists, to me, it's about their vision. Yeah. You know, yeah, concertos, they share with the orchestra. But at the end of the day, the orchestra is playing with, with the them. soloists. Yeah, yeah. And, and so many times I've heard conductors say, I saw you were a piano performance major, so I was a little worried. Because as a collaborative pianist, sometimes you have to surrender your own musicianship for the greater good. But I'm sure the, the, the optimal situation is really having that collaboration. Absolutely, and that is the optimal situation, but... And that's why I hate that word, accompanist. Yeah. I, I, like, I try everything in me not to use that word mm -hmm. because I really do believe if you're listening to... You know, what, what can I think about? If you're listening to a, a Shostakovich or even a Mozart violin sonata or mm -hmm. something, 
he wrote it for violin and, and piano. piano. Right. And there are even some composers who acknowledged the pieces as duets. I think um, I think well, Weber yeah. wrote like duet for piano and right. clarinet, and, mm-hmm. and and it really comes through when when the musicians treat it as such. Mm-hmm. Even if the composer didn't consider it that, I think that it should always be a duet and a collaboration and 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 feeding off of each other's ideas right. and all that. And when it is like when the other person or people are prepared, collaboration is amazing. Do you have a favorite um, instrument to to uh, work with, other than bassoon, of course? Oh well, <laughs> oh man, I think my love. I'll say this: if I wasn't playing piano, I'd totally be a cellist, and I'd be really? in, and I'd be in a string quartet. So, so you like so you like collaborating with with cellists? Right. Well, not I think strings in general. Okay, because that is just the most popular thing out there. Mm-hmm. But you know, when we did the Poulenc piece, that was awesome. Oh yeah, the uh, the, the trio, elbow, yeah, right? amazing. Yeah, and I think again, it's just going to you have to try new things. You do, know? do you have a least favorite instrument? Yeah, to to collaborate with, <clears throat> you know, this is uncut. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I have a least favorite. Um, <laughs> I'll say I'll say this <laughs> out of my personal experience, some of the more challenging people to play for are vocalists. Oh, sorry, vocalists. I, I love y'all. I love y'all. I really do. But I think it's one of those things where they get used to having an accompanist, right? And, and, and not, not a, a, collaborative and not a collaborator. And that's one of those things where I was saying sometimes you have to surrender. You surrender. Say, you say they need to surrender. Yeah. <laughs> or meet in the middle. So okay. So so right now you're talking specifically to all of the vocalists. What what advice as a pianist do you have for them to make a, a collaborative project a little more enjoyable and a little more musical? Even I think the first thing they need to do is always know the full score. So many times they just work on their line, and say for instance, he dragging y'all. I know, but look, I work with y'all all the time, so that's just how, look y'all y'all pay me. So, yeah. um, let's say for instance you're in a vo- you're in a voice lesson. Um, nine times out of ten, you know, I'll show up for the lesson, play. But when these kids are practicing on their own, they're literally just probably or adults listening to just their line, and they're not listening to how the whole body works. Because so many times they'll say, "Oh wow, I didn't even know that's what that sounded like." See. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But as instrumentalists, we are always listening to everything. So I think for a vocalist, you just have to really know what's going on in the piano or the orchestration so that you really know your entrance or just to really be in the ebb and flow of everything. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you uh, talking to me. Will you will you shout out and talk a little bit more um, just as we wrap up here about uh, your your chamber music group, how they can find information about them, upcoming performances? Yes, absolutely. So we are called Black Tie, and the tie is an acronym for Transcending, Illuminating, and Educating. And oh, wow. Right, shout out to Kermaine snaps, for snaps. the actual words, and I just was like, hey, let's just make it tie yeah. and classy. So, we're a group of black men. Um, Kermaine is that cello guy on YouTube, so he's like the famous one out of the three of us. <laughs> but I think for us, and I'm speaking for all of us right now, we just had our first performance last September, so we're still kind of really getting our feet wet, but I think our vision is 
making not just classical music, but just higher level music available and accessible to everyone. Yeah. I think our, our first concert, we were going to charge tickets. And then I was like, you know what? Let's just do a love offering or something. Because we're still going to make our money here. Yeah, but it's, I tell people all the time, being a musician is crazy. It's almost being insane. Because if you really love what you do, you just love it. Yeah. And even though you may be struggling, it, it's like almost okay. And so we just want to make sure everyone is getting quality music. No matter what side of town you're on, no matter what color you are, gender, doesn't matter. We are all human beings on this planet. And music speaks to everybody. Everybody loves some kind of music. So Black Tie's mission is to find that. Is there a website or anything? We don't have a website yet. Facebook group? Or? We are going to start one today. Okay. <laughs> so well, that sounds great. We will be Black Tie, and that's just capital T, capital I, capital E. And uh, be looking out for us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, our next concert tentatively is September 7th in Knoxville. And then September 24th or 28th in Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, so Georgia. We hope to see y'all there. And... Um, be looking out for us because I think what our mission statement is is going to really put us on the map here soon. But again, we're just here to make good music. Excellent. Well, thanks again. Thank, and, thank you. And thank vocalists, you. get yourself together. Learn please, the whole please, story. please. I'm telling you, it's not just me. <laughs> A little vocalist shade at the end there, but all in good spirits, all in good fun. I'm sure that everybody has something <laughs> sour to report on just about anybody. It doesn't matter what instrument they're on. Yeah. Well, the Black Tie Trio doesn't quite have, um, at the time of, of me and Scott recording this, doesn't have their uh, website together yet. But if you will um, Google Brandon Kofer Piano, uh, the first link um, that pulls up for me is his uh, his website on with the Marble City Opera, who he works with down in Knoxville. So if you're interested in more information on him or the Black Tie Trio, just Google Brandon Kofer, C-O-F-F-E-R, Piano. And um, that uh, interview, as uh, you may have uh, heard in there, was was uh, taken at the Sphinx Conference in Detroit, um, as was the previous conversation with um, Katie and uh, Delaney. Uh, next time, you'll you will hear the final interview that I captured at uh, Sphinx. I actually talked with um, a colleague of ours over at Performance Today, Kathleen Bradbury. It okay. Was, it was her very first time at Sphinx. Um, she shares her thoughts on um, what all of that means, her experience in thinking about race as, as, a, as it applies to classical music. And uh, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy hearing that. <laughs>